0: Good evening everyone. Uh, Whether you're joining us from the bright lights of the Big Apple or from the banks of the Kennebec River up the East Coast, we are so glad to have the hundreds of you uh, from Jewish communities around the country join us for our very first Sapir conversation in the evening. We typically do these in the middle of the day. So for those of you who are newer to the Sapir community, first of all, welcome. Uh, We see you and we're happy to have you here. Sapir is a quarterly journal devoted to conceptualizing ideas for a thriving Jewish future. And our series of virtual conversations, what we're doing right now, is an effort to lift the words off of the page and to unpack some of those ideas with the authors themselves. Today's discussion with two leading rabbinic figures couldn't come at a more important time especially as Israel enters into its 119th day of war with Hamas. But there's another reason that the timing is important and it's related to the anniversary of a different time, not too long ago. It was about two years ago, the date was January 15th, 2022, that a gunman armed with a pistol took four people hostage, including the rabbi, for 10 full hours on a quiet and cold Shabbat morning in Colleyville, Texas. At the time, I was serving as the White House liaison to the Jewish community. And as we veered into the following Shabbat, we decided to host a virtual gathering the Friday after the attack for Jewish Americans around the country. We had on the call leading national security officials from the US government, along with the rabbi from the Colleyville community, Charlie Citron Walker, because what we wanted was to provide a sense of calm, connection, and community. We didn't want, in the words of Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, for Jews in America to feel as if it required an act of courage to go to synagogue. Now, some of you on this call might've attended that briefing. There are many things that stood out for me from that call, and one in particular, You know, long before the words shul or synagogue or temple was invented, before those words were invented to describe places of worship for the Jewish community, there is another word that we used in Hebrew, and that is Beit knesset. Beit knesset. All right, so who cares? Why is that remotely interesting? Well, it's because those two Hebrew words connote the inherent meaning and purpose of the institution. It is at once a knesset, a place of gathering. The value is in being with one another. And perhaps more importantly, it's a bayit, It's a house. Or when it really clicks, it's more than that. It's a home. A shul is a home. Shuls, synagogues, temples, bate knesset have played a sacrosanct role at the heart of the Jewish community from time immemorial. And while the synagogue has undergone some natural transitions throughout history, at the helm of these synagogues are always individuals who sought the rabbinate, pulpit rabbis who have taken on the remarkable mission of leading a community in times of happiness and sorrow, in moments of tragedy and in miraculous moments as well. It is of course an incredibly meaningful position but, and we're all family here, right? Let's be honest, it's a hard job. It's a hard job. And I'm not just saying that as the grandson and nephew of two conservative cantors, it's a hard job. And I presume that the last four years have been among the most challenging from the abrupt impact of a pandemic a few years ago to the harrowing news of a massacre a few months ago. Pulpit rabbis, community leaders from around this country and really worldwide have been the captains of a ship amid a rocky and uncharted set of waters. How did rabbis maintain that sense of connection of congregating in a shul when an unforgiving virus forced us into our homes? How did rabbis maintain that sense of home as acts of anti-Semitism continue to rise? And how do we contend with the future of the synagogue in a digital age when maybe for some members of our community it's preferable or more enjoyable to join the community online rather than in person. We are, to use religious nomenclature, we are blessed to have with us two leading rabbis from two very different communities join us tonight to help the rest of us understand the art of synagogue leadership in turbulent times. First, we have Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove who leads one of the largest and oldest conservative synagogues in the largest Jewish community in the largest city in the United States. Park Avenue Synagogue is a storied New York institution and Rabbi Cosgrove is the beating heart of that congregation. And among his many, many, many accolades, Rabbi Cosgrove represented the Jewish community in 2015 at the National September 11th Memorial Museum during a visit of Pope Francis to New York. And I remember watching the video. It is remarkable. And Rabbi Rachel Isaacs is the spiritual leader of the century-old Beth Israel congregation in Waterville, Maine, which is home to, I think, a bit less than 16,000 people. Um, She also serves as the founder and executive director of the Center for Small-Town Jewish Life at Colby College. And among her many accolades, she was named America's Most Inspiring Rabbi by the Forward in 2014 and also offered the final Hanukkah benediction during the Obama administration in 2016. So in truth, while both have remarkable backgrounds, perhaps their greatest credential is that they are authors of two brilliant essays in our current issue of Sapir on technology. And if you haven't yet had the chance to read it, I encourage you to check out sapirjournal.org. And with that, welcome to you both. Thank you for coming.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Lana
0: um, you know, Before we dive in, just a reminder to everyone in the audience, as you listen to the conversation, please, please, please send in any and all questions. And if you want to do so anonymously, just don't write your name. Uh, and we'll try to get to the questions in the final uh, 15 to 20 minutes of this uh, hour-long discussion. Rabbi Cosgrove, let's start with you, if that's okay. Um, in your essay, uh, you make a really compelling case that our current digital age is as profound a transformation in the sweep of Jewish history as the creation of, you know, a roving tabernacle in the desert, or the shift to a system of sacrifice with a temple in Jerusalem, or the change to a focus on worship and study in the diaspora. It's not your mother's synagogue, you write, not even your synagogue from five years ago, because of the pandemic. But you know, when I was reading through the essay, you don't seem to be bothered by the rapid changes. In fact, you seem animated by the possibilities, I'm curious, did you feel that way once COVID hit your community and do you still feel that way today and why?
1: All great questions. Uh, and it's a shame we only have an hour to do this and uh, I'll try to keep it brief, uh, but Hanan and to your team at Sapir, thank you for the warm and gracious invitation um, and uh, the, the the sweetness of this moment. Um, is that I get to share it with my dear friend and respected colleague, Rabbi Isaac. So I I look forward to the dialogue ahead. Look, I the uh, uh, French philosopher Valéry once wrote that everyone is destined to live in the time into which they are born, meaning I can't complain about the time in which I'm living. I'm serving the Jewish community. So there are moments where maybe it would have been nice to live in some sort of halcyon yesteryear day where everyone went to synagogue every shabbos and everyone went to hebrew school every week and uh, you know first of all i don't think those days actually existed um, but i i think that uh, this is a time that i've been called on to serve um, my community and my congregation so you can either shrike vault and complain and uh, wag your fingers, um, uh, wishing you were in some other time, or you can meet the challenges and the opportunities of the moment. I don't think I was so um, calm about it on March 20th of, you know, 20, when, when COVID struck. Um, And I don't think, um, you know, and I appreciate the way you opened the discussion by naming the historical moment we're in post-October 7th. This is a time where we're all feeling um, the pressures of the moment. But I think the um, style of leadership that I've tried to exemplify is to assess uh, the 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 landscape of the hour and to respond um, creatively with the resources and surrounded by a great team. So um, I look. I'm of the opinion uh, that um, COVID was uh, a catalyzing force, an accelerant um, to trends that were already um, taking place. Right. The you know people were talking about disintermediation long before COVID. The idea that um, the membership patterns of people joining synagogues, um, the manner by which communities you think of uh, books like Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, um, you think about the, the the idea that people are accessing information uh, in um, in uh, on their iPhones, um, you know, ask my kids, as I noted in the article, when's the last time? I, I asked them actually, I have four college age kids, when's the last time you checked a book out of a library? It's all online now, everything's on Canvas, everything you know, uh, how we access information. These were not COVID innovations, but what COVID did was they forced a the question, they normalized things. So, five years ago, we would have never had this discussion, uh, here online um, as we are right now, but it's become normalized. It, the, the very structure of tonight's program um, is a byproduct of uh, the cultural learning curve that we all learned how to breathe underwater and now we're taking the learned lessons uh, into into the future. So, I mean we'll get into it in the conversation of what stays and what goes and what the pluses and minuses were in the moment the it, it was you know I thought uh, I thought it couldn't get worse and it got worse with October 7th in the moment I was not calm about it the community was not calm about it Rabbi Isaac's article really talks about some of the 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 trauma of that time as felt in the live lives of communities but um You know, I I feel very proud of the way my community did and continues to pivot in response to um, the onset of the digital age.
0: And you've navigated rather quickly. How soon after the pandemic started, did you pivot to an um, online platform for your community?
1: So it's an interesting footnote to it. And I don't want to get into the weeds too early on this, but as a conservative rabbi, uh, there were all sorts of discussions um about whether or not we would zoom whether or not we'd not park avenue synagogue just as a data point had already been passively uh live streaming our services before covid Um, it was intended for the homebound uh, senior um, the grandmother who couldn't fly in for the kids bar mitzvah um, from florida Um, we had the camera set up so we had already had the cultural conversation the halachic conversation of whether we were going to do it and then we uh had already a very modest amount of technology in place um so uh we actually were the first um we, we we didn't miss a beat there was never a service that we didn't actually have the ability to live stream the service Uh, And then we obviously invested a lot um, in the technology, and we have an AV team now. And so then it went on to steroids. But the actual moment itself, uh, we we didn't miss a beat.
0: So in other words, the pandemic hit on a Wednesday or Thursday, that Shabbat, you're able to broadcast to communities.
1: um, More than that. On On the Shabbat before COVID, we were already broadcasting to communities.
0: That's remarkable um and clearly it created a foundation uh with a lot of time prior to i and you know rabbi isaacs during my extensive research and preparation for tonight um i unearthed the surprising fact that waterville maine is not the upper east side it <laughs> turns out um that the challenges and opportunities in a big city are different than the challenges and opportunity in a small town I think your organization has estimated that what one in eight American Jews live outside of the 12 major metropolitan areas where you know, most Jews reside. Um, you know, During the pandemic, your community and Rabbi Cosgrove's community had access to the same technologies perhaps at different times, right? Maybe, did you have access immediately after or at what point were you able to create a Zoom environment?
2: <clears throat> I had the ability on my laptop from my home to start having services over Zoom and and stream on Facebook, but the synagogue did not have any ability to stream or get online other than from my personal laptop. Actually, we still don't have that capability. Our synagogue is finishing up a renovation and we put in a camera. Um, So that's something new, but it's very difficult to get functional internet in Waterville, part of the reason why I'm speaking to you right now from Colby College is that the internet in my home isn't reliable enough for this conversation, so we had to go about other means to keep our community together, uh, aside from very low-tech Zoom calls from from our home in Waterville.
0: Yeah, you actually write very powerfully about this in your essay uh, that at some point, and I'm not—I think it was around Simchas Torah 2020—but you can. Uh, correct me if I'm off base, you opted actually not to rely on Zoom services, even though as Rabbi Kosworth just mentioned, um, you know, there were discussions about this within the broader conservative movement, and it was blessed ultimately by, uh, you know, the conservative rabbinic leadership. So, but you chose to hold services in person and outside, why?
2: I mean, I wrote about this in in the essay, I think Judaism is an embodied faith. I think that there is an element to Jewish community that has to be lived physically and communally, which doesn't mean that i'm totally against the Internet or that we don't do anything online. We had a major snowstorm last week and I didn't want anybody making an unsafe decision, so I broadcast from my home. So I don't think it's either or but I didn't want our community to go completely online because it was unsure to me how we would ever go back in person if we became a totally virtual community, as many synagogues did. And what I heard from my congregants time and time again was, I miss being together. I just miss the physicality of being together. Shoal doesn't feel like Shoal online. And one of them actually said, I'm losing my stickiness to the community. And and I heard this And I also saw my preschool age children start to suffer immediately from their inability to go to school in person. They go to, uh, or they went to a preschool called Educare, which is Head Start in Waterville. 90% of the kids are low income, 10% are above the poverty line. And they tried to move preschool online and It it didn't work, first of all, the teachers didn't know how to use zoom because a lot of people in Waterville, especially working class people didn't even have laptops in their in their houses. And it doesn't work for three and four year olds my my eldest would get angry and she would say this isn't school this isn't school and so anytime she saw facetime she would actually start screaming, I mean it was really that visceral and. And so that school, as many public schools in Maine, went back in person long before a lot of schools in major metropolitan areas, because they realized that if, if the kids in our area weren't physically in school, they weren't being fed, they were often um, in dangerous environments, and they weren't learning. And um, so I saw the effect it was having on my kids, I saw the effect that the isolation was having on my congregants and our sense of togetherness. And Maine is a very outdoorsy state. Even before the pandemic, we would have hiking services where I had laminated Sudareem because what I realized is that people wouldn't come to synagogue in the summer in Maine because nobody wants to be inside on a beautiful Maine day. And so I sort of could capitalize actually in the same way that Rabbi Cosgrove already had the infrastructure for technology. I had the infrastructure to do things on hiking trails and mountains and on our synagogue patio. And so when that fork in the road came, ultimately, we went for going outside as much as possible so that we could be together. And I mean, look, there was one shiva minion where my community was upset when it was two degrees. I think a lot of people thought that was extreme. But other than that, I think the ability to just see each other in person to hold hands to harmonize, uh, to not have to mute yourself during services. I think on the whole that that was appreciated and, and we could come back together in person with a little more confidence because we kept that physical connection.
0: I, lo- I love that image of, of davening in, in the woods and this notion that each of you have created infrastructures tied deliberately to your communities ahead of the curve that prepared you ultimately to lead them in this time of crisis. Um, Was there any point, though, Rabbi Isaacs, when people were clamoring to revert back to Zoom other than that two degree moment? And Rabbi Kajbov, was there any time when your congregants were clamoring to, um, you know, be in synagogue more frequently?
2: I mean, the sub degree, the sub zero temperatures were definitely um, that that was the point at which uh, I was perceived by some in my congregation to be a zealot which might be true, Uh, when the weather was nice, it would, the congregation was much more amenable for sure. Uh, And the only other time that I think that there's a real clamoring for online services, again, is snow and ice and darkness. So that's a time that is season and weather dependent where having online options is helpful.
1: Right, I I think from the get-go, uh people anticipated the moment that we could all be back together i don't think there was ever a time where we thought that you know hanan as you opened up this evening's discussion as as a synagogue defined as a beit knesset a house of gathering i think we all intuitively understood that and i and i think that rabbi Isaacs is, i agree with her 100 percent that uh that um the Um, value proposition of synagogue life is to be in community in physical community with other people it's um it's better with others uh and if if any the the i don't so i don't know if it's i differ with her i'm just offering um I, i suppose um a texture to it is um the um the zoom community or the zoomification of synagogue life um, clarified the countercultural proposition of synagogue life in the sense that people understood that we had to get back to minyan, we had to get back to kibbutzing at kiddish, we had to get back to singing uh, in uh, together, in attending each other's shivas and simchas and and other life cycle events in person. We figured out a way to do it on zoom because we had to um but and and then there were some things that snapped back very quickly there are some things that have snapped back with a fury right um and maybe we'll get to this in the discussion but um I you know post October 7th synagogue life the numbers of people who are coming to be present are um, unprecedented in uh, my rabbinic career um, what i'm seeing and they are they are online but they're also coming in person the sanctuary is filled and it's it's not a small sanctuary uh and and then the really interesting question is what stays and what goes and what's hybrid so i teach a minion class uh after uh, on a weekday morning um it used to be sort of you know uh, eight to ten people um with bad synagogue coffee but it was lovely and i was happy to do it as many rabbis do post minion uh now um i teach it and there could be 70 80 people online at eight in the morning there could be or zoom screens Um, And there are far more people in person because people sort of rotate in and out. And I have the owl camera set up there and I'm teaching and um, and everyone gets what they want. So and I could give many examples of that um, as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's it. It's incredibly astute. I mean, the beauty of what Park Avenue Synagogue has built since the pandemic is most not mostly. It is also the scale. Right. You don't have to be a member to necessarily hear your sermons. Uh, or to sing along to, I think, Cantor, Ivy Schwartz's songs, mm-hmm. like which reaches what thousands of what not tens of thousands of people yeah, around yeah. the world, absolutely. Um, and suddenly, your virtual community is exponentially larger than your in-person community. Um, I'm at. I, are there any drawbacks to this new reality, or is it predominantly benefit?
1: Are there drawbacks? Um, well, to the Park Avenue community, I think you know, I don't want to rabbi explain the thoughts of my community, but I think the, 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 the bricks and mortar community are, there's been no interruption in what they are getting. We are still serving our resident membership. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully it's a point of pride that when someone's, you know, sister-in-law who lives in Philly or Bloomington or, you know, Australia says, oh, you know, I heard you know Cantor Schwartz or any of the clergy or Rabbi Cosgrove's sermon uh, that it, it's it's additive. Um, I'm trying to think of an example where it's it's not. Look, I I, I, I squirmed um, after uh, Minion. You know, I, I said maybe maybe it's just time to shut the Zoom off because I would see people on Minion who I knew were in walking distance to the synagogue, and I was like come on people just come in but then but then there are people who are on far-flung communities um and rabbi isaacs can speak to this much better than i for whom an in-person minion option is not an option either because of geography or because of health i mean we we created a relationship with a whole series of hospitals on the holidays that um, people who were um, in one of the new york hospitals um, over the holidays to this day know that they can access, you know, a service at Park Avenue. It's a point of pride that we're able to do that. As it Um, should be.
2: One thing that I might jump in and say is that, you know, the two synagogues that I think do streaming the best are Park Avenue Synagogue and Central. Mm -hmm. And I know that both synagogues are attuned to the value that they bring across the country. But also have a concern that in places like Central Maine, for example, a colleague was telling me that she had high holiday services at her synagogue and she was expecting somebody who came to one of her services to come to the second service and they didn't come. And she asked later, well, I was expecting you. You said you were coming. Why didn't you come? And they said. Actually, we decided to go down and basically have a watch party of Central Synagogue instead of coming to your local synagogue in this small main town. And the concern with that is when somebody's sick, when somebody dies, when somebody goes through a divorce, when somebody has a Simcha, then what? Because if that person feels as though streaming and having this watch party is enough, and they don't support the local synagogue, then they, can they retain their rabbinic support and the brick and mortar of that synagogue to get the physical services that they need. And I think that that is a concern for small town synagogues that even if I had a different uh, worldview vis-a-vis technology, I can't have an AV team, I can't have the kind of setup that exists, I can't afford a cantor, none of the small town synagogues can. And so it it poses an interesting question for how do we make the most out of providing very high quality, very inspirational Jewish life coming out of, you know, very well resourced inspirational synagogues, while also ensuring that small town communities are supported because there are some things you know, nobody really wants to get their V. their final confession over FaceTime even, and, and large town clergy can't actually be rabbis to small town Jews across the country. And, and somebody does need to officiate at that funeral. So, and, and name those babies. So I think that there is an upside that many people are inspired by these communities and then will come to their local shoals And of course, more Torah, more engagement, all the better. But there has to be some sort of balance to ensure that um, the success of a few large synagogues doesn't come uh, at the expense of, of small town communities that that at least when it comes to a certain type of service or production value, we can't
0: provide. Rabbi kashro any reactions? Right, you no
1: know, and look the rabbi isaacs and i are friends even though we're calling each other rabbi and rabbi um and we've actually talked about the you know i have no desire um nor i'm sure do the folk at central and the other synagogues to be the walmarts of jewish life and living and you know you know um put you know i'm i'm a shul person in my bones i grew up in a synagogue i've always been connected i see its effect on people and um, right. And and synagogues have been struggling long before covid um, as people, as I said earlier, change their So I don't know. Uh, you know, there's anecdotal evidence, um, you know, what the example that Rabbi Isaacs uh, used of the person who sidestep services to go online. But what are sort of the long term? Effects are there, dis- are people's choices being informed differently? Um, knowing that they have an online option, uh, I don't, um, I don't know of any data on that. I don't, I don't know that doesn't mean it's not the case. Um, we, you know, Rabbi Isaac and I have talked about um, ways that um, large synagogues and small synagogues, urban synagogues, and rural synagogues might be able to work together. Um, I know we had, you know, I'll just give you a small example, but um, uh, we have a nice relationship with a, a book series, the Jewish Lives book series, um, where because we're Park Avenue, um, we have a, uh, a relationship that when the authors come to do a book talk, um, they're able to, you know, we, we have the book talk here on the new, newest book on Barbara Streisand or Hank Greenberg or, you know, you name it, some big figure in uh, Jewish life and living. And um, what we did was we created a partnership with a bunch of synagogues, and that became a Zoom event that members of that community, kind of like the webinar we're on right now, were able to be in dialogue with the author. Um, you only need one book event, right? Um, and you don't, you know, so that was an example of small communities partnering with um, us that we were able to um, create a sense of of, of shared um, purpose.
0: I love that. Listen, um, to the community on this call right now, if there are any particular questions that you want to ask of Rabbi Isaacs and Rabbi Cosgrove, uh, we welcome them. Please insert those questions in the Q&A. We're going to get to 10-7 uh, momentarily. I just want to wrap up with this segment with one particular question. Based on what you both have described, let's say fast forward 16 years, it's now 2040. Are there certain parts of this digital digital reality that you think will stick and are there certain aspects that you think are healthy or not necessarily healthy for, let's say, the conservative and reform movements in particular? Uh, because the Orthodox movements haven't used this on the Sabbath per se, but they have um, utilized it during the week. Um, and I've seen that, for example, with Dafyomi Shears learning the Gemara on a daily basis, but particularly for conservative and reform movements, 16 years from now, are there certain things that you'd, you'd wanna expand upon or shift as a result of some of these digital um, innovations? And I open it up to the floor, but...
1: Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I hope so. I, I mean, I think that there's a great book by a colleague of uh, ours uh, named uh, Danny Schiff, which is on Judaism in the digital age. And, um and you know, he, he writes about, right, not just a question of coming together in community, but how we access information, um, he, he talks about um, the question of truth and, um, you know, and, and, and media and the effect that has on our thinking. And, and each one of these things are both great challenges, but they're also, I believe, opportunities. And so the, it's not given at Mount Sinai that thou shalt go to Hebrew school in such and such way, right? If, if it's discovered, as is happening in secular education, that there are new modalities of learning um that can be made available by way right why wouldn't we apply that same wisdom to how a kid learns to decode hebrew or you know participate we we still want everyone together for the israel day parade or whatever it might be right there's value as rabbi isaac said in being in person but i you know uh you know and then there'll be challenging moments i was in a uh a, a Reform synagogue uh, the other month, and they had the words of they were decedured. D. De, they had didn't have the prayer book, but the words of whatever the cantor was singing was sort of broadcast on the wall. Um, and I was like, oh, that you know that that gave me pause. I was like, is that cool, or is that um, like one step too far? That's outside of my comfort zone but 15 years from now will you see you know the the words of the prayer you know instead of saying please follow along in the sidur people will just look uh, I don't know so
0: wow, that is that's a wild thought and I also never thought of Hebrew school as the 11th commandment I, I don't know if that's good or bad um rabbi isaac what do I have for you a reaction sure. to what rabbi Cosgrove said
2: before i answer that question i would be remiss if i didn't say Um, In terms of the relationship that the Center for Small Town Jewish Life has with Park Avenue and Central Synagogue, that both of those synagogues have supported the Center for Small Town Jewish Life in our work to complement much of what they do. So Mm. I think that there there can be ongoing conversation and there's already been really beautiful connections in making sure that the American Jewish ecosystem um, is healthy. So I just want to... Beautiful. do a little bit of Hakarata Tov, of, of recognizing the good. Look, Maine is very countercultural. I've always made the joke that every hundred miles you go up north in Maine, you go back another decade. So current events affect us, but I like living in 1997, and thankfully in Waterville, I, I, can, I can still be here to a certain extent. Um, Maine is a place, especially central and northern Maine, is a place that generations of Jews have gone to to resist modernity so in the 1970s there was the back to the land movement that is in many ways still the heart and soul of my synagogue at beth israel and what we're seeing right now is another wave of the back to the land movement of young jews in their 20s and 30s that are homesteading and starting up farms very active in organic farming in the cannabis industry in the farm to table movement and I think that there is a segment of the Jewish community that is is going to resist a lot of what we see happening vis-a-vis technology. Because there's a spiritual desire to return to the land and to live a certain kind of embodied natural life and and I consider my wife and I part of that, you know, since living in Maine I grow my own food and I bring it home and. Mel, my wife will pickle it and and can it and we'll share it with our community. So I think that in rural life, especially for my congregants that live two and a half hours away, I've been using the Internet and the phone in order to train kids for B'nai Mitzvah long before. um, The pandemic to connect with the snowbirds that go down to Florida, I was doing that long before the pandemic. But I also think Maine and, and rural America, especially people who live intentionally in rural areas, mm-hmm. will be the people who embrace what I would say is, is a friction, uh, a productive friction of living a, a defiantly embodied and, and countercultural life. Alana Newhouse re- wrote a beautiful piece in Tablet about how everything is becoming flat, everything is becoming se- seamless and efficient and clear. And yet the more seamless we make the world, the more things actually feel broken and the less functional our society becomes. So I think in the next 15 to 20 years, what you're gonna see in places like Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, is a climate resilient Jewish community that's growing, that Mm -hmm. is actually going to provide an alternative to the trends that I think will be dominant in the rest of the Jewish world. And I would just say that's a different way to parse the Jewish world, not in, by denomination or even approach to halakha, but rather a, a different approach to modernity.
0: Mm. Um, it's, yeah, that's um, if you've heard it first, folks, right here, um, this is what would take place in 2040. It's hard to prognosticate, and it's a challenging question, but I, I appreciate the responses. And in fact, it'll look slightly different in different parts of this country. Uh, Ways that'll be emblematic of those communities, but I want to pivot to the. No, I'm I'm
1: feeling very, I'm feeling very self-conscious because the rabbi grows her own, you know, and I like order <laughs> from Instacart here. I've, I no longer even go into the supermarket. I just. Uh, but you got know, some great restaurants
0: around the in the neighborhood, that's so true. you
1: know that's something. That's not enjoy. so much. <laughs> You're
0: not okay. So the options for different types of people, in different communities. Um. It's been a tough four years, not just because of the pandemic, um, but because um, to get a little bit more serious about what happened on October 7th. And Rabbi Khosrow, you've been hailed in the Jerusalem Post as having stepped up like few others. In fact, they called you a wartime rabbi and commended you for leading the unprecedented effort, really unprecedented, um, at raising $18 million within a couple of days and two weeks, I should say, after your Yom Kippur appeal. Uh, There was no rest for the weary, and that's probably an understatement. Um, How did you hear about the massacre and what was your immediate reaction?
1: So, um, despite the um, use of technology, I don't use my phone on Shabbat. uh, And um, occasionally there'll be a pastoral emergency that I'll have to uh, um, respond to. But um, that morning, my wife's phone kept ringing in the middle of the night. Um, and it was her sister, who lives in Israel, uh, who um, said that there had been an attack. Um, the, the sirens were off and were, were, were ringing. And my nephew was actually home that Shabbat, uh, and he was um, called back into um, service to return immediately. So that's how I actually heard the news Um, And so, you know, very personal, very deeply felt. And he remains in Gaza um, uh, as a a soldier in the IDF right now. So the, um, you know, the response of the community um, and people use, you know, different terms for the Great Awakening, um, our tribal moment, uh, you know, an epic defining pre- October 8th and uh, October 7th and post October 7th um, I, I think the paradox of October 7th is that both everything changed and nothing changed at the same time much in the same way and two totally different things I'm not creating any you know uh, uh false equivalents here But uh, in the same way that the very trends we were discussing 10 minutes ago about disintermediation um, and digital age preceded COVID, um, let's not pretend that anti-Semitism didn't exist, that American Jews weren't figuring out their relationship with Israel, that there wasn't a blurring of line between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, that, um, uh, you know, all these questions we're asking now on steroids – did proceed October 7th. Um, now it's happening um, in this very uh, urgent and acute way under the shadow of war. And as you indicated, Hanan, you know, not that any of us um, would have wished um, any of this, um, but there has been um, a very affirming surge of Jewish identity by way of um, worship, by way of attendance on uh synagogue programs education uh um philanthropy you mentioned um Israel trips every trip we offer is sold out um a few hours after we do it for solidarity missions to Israel uh so it's been an extraordinary um moment I I just want to leave you with one thought that um, my daughter shared um comparing covid to uh october 7th she said the thing about covid was that we were all physically um, not in the places we should be but we were um emotionally or communally um together right we were separate but we were together um the thing about this moment and this is spoken by a college age kid is thank god they're on the campuses they know They are in the places physically where they're supposed to be, but in in the mind of a young person, um, they don't know where they stand politically and emotionally during this time. So I give full credit to my daughter. Um, That was a very astute insight about comparing COVID to, to October 7th.
0: No, a lot of wisdom um, in that, undeniably. Uh, Rabbi Isaacs, just building on that, you know, the news of the massacre didn't just happen at any time. It took place on Simchat Torah, right, the pinnacle of our happiness. Uh, How did you balance that gravity of the news with the grandeur of the holiday?
2: Yeah, so I remember walking into synagogue on Shemini Atzeret. My phone was also off, Uh, but other than. My wife, I mean, nobody else in my synagogue is, is traditionally Shomer Shabbat, Shomer Chag. So somebody came up to me right before services and said, Rabbi, we need to have extra extra kavana, extra intention when we say the prayer for the state of Israel. And I said, why? I mean, I love Israel, but why? And she said, there's a war. And I said, oh, and I was like, okay. I was like, I've lived in Israel through several wars there have been several wars in my lifetime, I'm like, okay, you know, it just seemed like I know the drill, we'll say the prayer for the soldiers in Israel, I had no idea the magnitude of what had happened. And after services, this person came up to me and said, Rabbi, this is not just a normal war. This is not normal. And so I was anxious all day at shul. And usually I would keep off my phone for the second day of Chag, but I was like, mm, the conservative movement has a little bit of gray area on second day Chag, let me, let me check and what's, see what's going on. And when I saw the news, um, Hamas was still inside the Sterot police station. And, you know, I studied abroad at Ben-Gurion University in Be'er Sheva. it was one of the most important moments in my life, a lot of my good friends still live in the Negev. And so I know these places very intimately. And I started I said, I I just kept on reading more and more and I was like oh my gosh, this is not normal, this is extreme, and I knew that it would not be a normal Simchat Torah and what was interesting when I came into Shul on Simchat Torah. A lot of the Israelis who only come to my synagogue once or twice a year, they were all there, and they were all pale and broken and they came with their children and their kids didn't really understand what was going on because they saw their parents in this really shocking anguish. And yet they were excited about the candy and the flags. And I had invited my daughter's Girl Scout troop to join us for that Simchat Torah. And so we had this Waterville Girl Scout troop, my congregation, some Hillel students, and these, these Israeli American parts of my community, and it was extraordinarily difficult, because you could tell, we needed to name what happened, we needed to say extra prayers for Israel, we needed to name it. And on the other hand, it seemed as though the people in the most pain also needed me to cultivate a certain amount of joy. And so there was this interesting I would alternate back and forth between building that sense of joy, asking God, you know, that the liturgy of, of asking God to redeem us and to save us took on a very, very different um, tone. And even though I have a very politically diverse congregation, I'm in a college town, I have college students that are members of my community. You know, we handed out Israeli flags in addition to our Simchat Torah flags, because it was so important that we made a statement and that we connected in whatever way we could, even though Waterville, Maine really does feel like the edge of civilization, our hearts, many of our hearts, are still unbelievably close to Israel.
0: Hmm. If Waterville, Maine is the edge of civilization, I presume New York is the center of civilization. Um and listen, both of your community contains multitudes, um, as you point out. And I wanna to pivot to some of the questions that have come through. Sheila Zellinger asks, um, and uh, Rabbi Castro, maybe you'll take this first. In light of October 7th, how direct have you been with your congregation about your views about Hamas, the Palestinians, ceasefire, et cetera? Um, and do you feel this quote unquote grounded the congregation or did it create a lot of angst and contested views?
1: uh it's a great great question i think that um the park avenue synagogue and i'm sure if people differ with me i'll get emails after this uh webinar but uh we are not just a conservative movement congregation but but i think we are small c conservative as well in um our unwavering support for israel um i believe that uh you know, my own politics um, have been, look, two weeks before I was speaking at a pro-democracy rally, um, and then I gave a speech after October 7th in the same spot in um, support of Israel. So I think what I probably experience, and probably what members of my community experience is that we, like half of the Israeli electorate, um, were not of the view that the decisions being made by the Netanyahu government were in the best long-term interests of um, the the vitality of the state of Israel, and when the chips were down, um, we totally pivoted our attention to support Israel in crisis, um, and that's been the case. The most interesting conversations I've had uh, have been, uh, you know, interesting in terms of contentious. Have been with um, college age kids, you know, back to what my daughter said. Um, I think that um, there's a generational gap. So, um, right now, um, and whether that's a reflection of who's consuming what information, be it on social media or elsewhere, um, a certain um, uh, progressive politic um, that, you know, anyone under 25 might have, that anyone over 20, right? There are all sorts of theories about why that is. Um, but, you know, my, my community is um, firmly uh, in the, um, you know, get our hostages back. Israel has every right to self-defense and self-determination. Uh, and whereas people might quibble um, over tactics, I think in sort of uh, the support for Israel, it's, it's unwavering. Um, I, and I do want to say, though, that I, I don't believe, um, you know, you know, the the idea of thought police and otherwise is, is something that does scare me. I think the great challenge of the Jewish community is um, how to house um, a diversity of views um, when it comes to Israel, when it comes to Jewish identity, um, and and beyond.
0: I wanna build on that, uh, Rabbi Cosgrove. For for you, Rabbi Isaacs, Joel Levy asks, would the rabbi's comment on the recent article in the New York Times Magazine about the generational rift in the Jewish community that has been made even more prominent since October 7th? Rabbi uh, Isaacs, because you're in a college town, to what extent do you see that? And the support that you saw in the days after the attack, has that adjusted or that shifted in the last 118 days since uh, the war began with, uh, with Hamas incursion? Um, would there still be flags, Israeli flags flown, you know, in your community, or is that, you know, less the case?
2: I think it's an excellent question. I serve, even though I'm in a small town, I serve many very diverse communities. And and that was true before October 7th. Um, with it, Among the Colby faculty, you'll see the full range of political approaches to Israel from you know, very staunchly anti Zionist to progressive Zionist to staunchly and and firmly Zionist among the college students, you also see a similar spread. Even though it's not 100% true, what I have noticed is that there's a gender divide often on my campus um, that often uh, the young men and the athletes tend to be more pro Israel. The women tend to be more progressive and Israel skeptical, although there are definitely exceptions. The other thing that's really interesting that I've noticed about generation is that there are so many ways you can cross cut the Jewish community. And one of the clearest ways that I see the community cut isn't just by generation, but by class. So the kids who are raised at Beth Israel congregation in working class families, I think the children of faculty are different, but the ones who are raised in working class families. are much more attached to Israel and much less conflicted about their Jewish identities than some of the wealthier students at Colby and i've noticed this for years. I think that the students who come from more working class backgrounds come from more politically conservative families in general. And they don't have this discomfort with their privilege because they don't have very much. And so they don't link their Jewish identities with a sense of privilege or a sense of whiteness in the same way that my students who come from wealthier areas do. And when I brought my congregation to Israel, which was a very interesting experience, I brought some of the kids from my Hebrew school with me I had to fundraise to make sure that nobody was turned away from lack of ability to pay. The connection that they felt to Israel was so intense because they grew up so isolated as Jews that when they got to experience a Shabbat in a city full of Jews, it was so transformational for them. Much more so even if I was raised on the Jersey shore, right? I grew up in a town that was 50% Jewish, like I was raised in a Zionist family, I love Israel very much but I know what it's like for my public school to be canceled on Shabbat or on high holidays rather. I know what it's like at the public school cafeteria I grew up in, they served matzah pizza over Passover. When I tell that to the kids in my congregation, they can't imagine it. And so when they went to Israel, it just affected them so deeply that there's a place they get to be normal. And they, it also to see a big working class Jewish community, Israel is where you have, working class and poor Jews in large numbers, you know, and so it's very resonant in that way. And the last thing that I'll say is, when a few of the kids raised in my community went to college, I had conversations with them before they went and, and they would come back to Shul, and I said to them, have you heard this narrative on your campus, <laughs> that Jewish donors somehow control the media or narratives about Israel? And that there's something nefarious about how the Jewish community uses its power to quell dissent about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or to, to sort of manipulate greater uh, experiences that you're having on your campus. And they said to me, yeah, we have heard that. It's so weird. You know, they, they just can't believe it because it does not resonate with their experience of growing up in a small town in Maine, whereas My Colby students, they are acutely aware of those narratives and they're willing to to consider them more resonant than the working class kids in Waterville, so I think it's important for us not to just look at a generation and geography, but also to issues of class because that really does affect one's connection to Israel.
0: I want to be, there's so much to unpack in that Um, both of your comments, I'm mindful that we are almost at time. Um, And so I wanted to just see if you had any, if you're speaking to your younger self, um, you're in, you're studying to be a rabbi um, and maybe there are young rabbis listening to you right now, words of wisdom for how to contend with this post 10 seven moment. Something you would have wanted to hear if you were um, sitting in the classroom chair about what it means to assert rabbinic leadership in tumultuous times, whether it's during a pandemic, whether it's during, you know, as a result of an uptick in anti-Semitism or as a result of a massacre in in the Jewish state. What would you want them to hear? Um, And maybe we'll start with you, Rabbi Cosgrove, and then we'll end with you, Rabbi Isaacs.
1: Look, if there is a young person contemplating rabbinical school or in rabbinical school making sense of this moment, uh, then you should know that I have the best job in the world and Rabbi Isaacs has the best job in the world. um, And that whereas we um, none of us, no human being would choose the challenges of this post-October 7th moment, uh, to be able to comfort a community, to shepherd a community, to um, speak to the issues of the day, um, to insist that our Judaism not be defined by the anti-Semites, but rather to create a joyful, um, uh, uh, dynamic, um, and textured uh, connection to the tradition Um I can't think of a better way to spend my life.
2: I love that Rabbi Cosgrove, and it it reminds me of um, I got to spend two years at HUC before I went to JTS, so I got the best of both worlds of reform and conservative training. And one of my teachers, it was a guest rabbi, actually, that came to talk about his life in the rabbinate, and he said, you know, sometimes rabbis will come in the middle or the end of their career. And they'll give you a story about their rabbinate that's very sort of expresses the pain and the trouble of of a rabbinic life. And he said, but I also want you to to hear what I'm about to say to you. He said, being a rabbi is the best job in the world, because you get paid to do mitzvahs. And I think about that all the time, I wake up and I get paid to do mitzvahs, right. And, And I work In an area where most of my daughter's friends parents work at paper mills if they're not working at Colby college. And I get paid to do mitzvahs and teach Hebrew I feel unbelievably blessed uh, to do this work, and the other thing that I would say is, I know that there's a lot of reticence to go into the rabbinate in general and to go into congregational life. But I feel like my work as a rabbi isn't just about serving the Jewish people that I love very much I I think being born a Jew. um, was the greatest gift that God ever gave me, but I also think that Judaism has something to give the rest of the world that it desperately needs, namely what it is to live a life of virtue. While still maintaining enough space for discourse and debate across lines of difference that ennoble us that create a clearer sense of truth and that provide solutions for a world that needs them. And we live in a particularly polarized moment and we also live in a moment where we see the damage done when we put a discourse of rights before a discourse of virtue. And one of the things that I love about Judaism is that we are a virtue-based community and we don't have to choose between being a virtue based community and drawing people together under a single roof to debate and to engage so that we can make each other better and get a clearer sense of a better path forward. We don't just need that as Jews, we need that as Americans now more than ever.
0: Well, let me just wrap with something you often hear in a synagogue, and that is amen. Amen to everything you both said, amen to everything you both said. I think, you know, in times of crisis, People need a few things. They need community to be able to gather together. They need content. They need words of wisdom. They need conviction right, and assertion of confidence. And sometimes they need charity, really, to give of oneself, either through financial resources or other means. And it goes without saying that both of you have not only done that for your own respective communities, but also for the Sapir community. So I want to thank you on behalf of the Sapir community and Jews around the country who have listened to you, who have watched you, and who have read your essays in Sapir. And if you haven't yet done so, please, I encourage you to check out both the essays from Rabbi Isaacs and Rabbi Cosgrove in the technology issue. We thank you so much for joining us tonight. We thank you, Rabbi Isaacs and Rabbi Cosgrove, and hope all of you have, to use religious nomenclature, a blessed evening. Thank you both. Lala Tov, everyone.